This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. This has been a rather incredible week, actually the last two weeks, if you have uh, taken any time to step away from our humdrum lives and take away from all the voices that continually compete for the Lord's voice in our life and just look at what's going on in our world right now, especially if you have an understanding of prophecy, if you remember when we went through the book of Daniel regarding the 70 weeks and stuff of that nature and how they all kind of forged together, if we... When we talked about the book of Ezekiel, we talked about the confederation of various nations that will come against Israel at the last time, and it has been absolutely amazing. One of the things that you will have to understand is that in the last days, what will happen is there will be a confederation with what we know now as Russia, Gog and Magog from the remotest parts of the north, and they will plan an invasion in, uh, in Israel in an area of unwalled villages. They will come being aligned with what we now know as Iran and also Turkey. And here we have Iran just this week and last week almost provoking us to war. Donald Trump was 10 minutes away from a military response, which would have sent the entire region into absolute chaos. And, uh, you know, he showed restraint and tried something else besides the military option. But we are literally one phone call away from going to war with a nuclear power. This happened this last week. Uh, one of the things that the book of Revelation talks about is, of course, there will be economic collapse that takes place that allows us to, to allow the world to give all power to the Antichrist. And if you've studied it, if you understand our economic systems, if you're an accountant or have a degree in economics, you realize that you know we're based on a, a fractional a uh, derivative banking system, and, and the reason why we've been allowed to experience the standard of living that we do is because other nations are willing to purchase our T-bills. They're willing to take our debt. The biggest debtor, of course, is China. They hold over $1.6 trillion of our debt, and they have threatened to uh, start releasing that debt, sending those dollars back into the United States, which means things could be really, really scary, worse than it was in 2008. And here we are now going into a trade war with China. It's a terrible time to do that. It needs to be done, but it's as a nation, but it's a terrible time for that to be happening. It's all kind of pulling together right now. The uh, the economy, you know, we talk about the stock market being higher than it's ever been, but if you ask the man on the street, things are not as well as it's normal. Uh, the, the, the largest employer in our nation right now is Walmart. Do you know who the second largest employer is? It's Kelly Temp Agency. In other words, the temporary workers now are the, are the second largest force out there in our labor market because of Anyway, it's, oh, it's, it's getting kind of crazy. Have you watched the debates? Have you seen what's going on? 
We have a whole political party now. We have every single person on the stage raise their hand and say, we want to give full health benefits to illegal aliens when many of our citizens don't even have that. I mean, it's, where are we going? Who's going to be paying for this? We want to pay for everybody's school bill. Well, how about paying for everybody's business loan and everybody else? I mean, we're, we're rapidly moving towards craziness here. I mean, it's, I mean, it's amazing some of the things that are going on. We have this moral decline in our nation. We have this gender confusion right now where all of a sudden laws are being passed. Law was passed in California that basically is going to require Christian schools now to teach about gender neutrality and stuff of that nature. I mean, if you think as a Christian and if you think as a church that we're going to be immune from this stuff in our culture, you're grossly mistaken. It's going to come on our doorstep, and we're going to have to deal with it. And some of us will go to jail. Some of us will get fined. Some of us will lose our possessions. It's simply the world in which we live right now. And all of this points towards the soon returning of the Lord Jesus Christ. At least I hope so, don't you? And so, you know, this week I've really been looking at some of the signs of his coming to see how close we are to that actually taking place. And the largest prophetic teaching Jesus ever gave about the end times is in Matthew chapter 24. So we're going to be spending the next couple of weeks going through Matthew 24. And I, uh, just in the first couple of verses, there's some profound truth here that I want to share with you. So it, it begins with this conversation that's taking place about the temple. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1 through 3. Open up your Bibles and follow with me, because we're going to take a great overview of this today. It says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the building of the temple. They were proud of it. Look at all these stones. Look at this edifice. Look what man has built to glorify the Lord. And Jesus shocked them in verse number 2, and says, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, that not one stone shall be left here upon another that, that shall not be thrown down. That he was speaking a prophecy that was going to be fulfilled 38 years later when Titus Vespasian came with the 3rd, 5th, and 7th Roman legion and destroyed Israel, and we know about that. But there's also prophecy that he talks about that's going to happen in the end times. And so after he made this statement, there's no conversation recorded between the disciples and Jesus. They left the temple. They went out the eastern gate. They went up into the Mount of Olives. Jesus sat down opposite of the the temple, and his disciples came to him privately because they were troubled with that question and wanted to know what was going on. Verse number three, it says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, Mark 13 says it was opposite the temple, so he's sitting there looking at it. The disciples is what Matthew says. Mark tells us that it really wasn't all the disciples. It was a segment of the disciples. It was the inner circle of the disciples. It was Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. It was the the ones that Jesus held closest to himself. The disciples came to him privately saying three questions. Number one, tell us when these things shall be. One sentence, one question, easy to determine. Number two, and what will be the sign of your coming, comma, number three, and of the end of the age? And then Jesus began to lay all of this out. He spent a little time talking about what's going to happen in AD 70, but he spent a lot of red ink here talking about the sign of his coming and the end of the age, the very times in which we live right now. 
So what I want to do is I want to, I want you to just take a deep breath and I want you to look at this text and I, I just want to point out some highlights in it before we dig a little deeper in here to give you a flow of what's happening. When I get ready to study the word, what I want to do is I, I want to see commonality. I want to see words that are repeated. I want to see themes that are repeated. I want to see if there's time words in there. I want to see if a word is used uh, more than once and if a derivative of that word is used more. I want to see what the flow is. I want to kind of place myself mentally with the disciples listening to Jesus' response. I read the text out loud when I'm studying it, I read it as dramatically as I can because I'm trying to imagine Jesus actually communicating these words. So I'm not only reading it, but I'm speaking it and I'm also hearing it. I'm trying to imagine during the pauses that would naturally take place what I would be feeling and how I would be responding and what possible questions I would have. So here's what he says in verse 4. Take heed that no one deceives you. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Because I see in verse number 5, the word deceived is used again. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Verse number 11, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Verse number 24, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Wow, okay, so it's more than just him talking about it in the beginning. This theme of deception flows through the first half of this teaching. Then I start looking at whether there's past tense words, present tense words, or future tense words. I want to see if what Jesus is saying is something that is going to currently take place during their lifetime or going to take place sometime in the future. Look at uh, verse number five. Look at the, how many times the word will or will be is used. Use. Verse number five, for many will come in my name and will deceive many. Verse number six, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Verse number seven, a nation will rise and there will be famines and pestilence. Verse number nine, then they will deliver you to tribulation, and you will be hated by all nations. Verse number 10, and many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Verse number 11, false prophets will arise. Verse number 12, lawlessness will abound. The love of many will grow cold. Get the point? This is a future event in the times that we're living right now. And then I want to sit back and, so are there time words in here? Are there words that indicate that there's a chronology that has to take place? Are there when or then words? And there, it's the, the passage is, is full of them. Verse number nine. Then, that's a time word. Event has to take place, and then they will deliver you to tribulation. After that fact, verse number 10, and then many will be offended and will betray one another. Verse number 11, after that fact, and then many false prophets will arise. Verse number 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Verse number 15, therefore when, when, that's a, that's a time word, you see the abomination of desolation. Verse number 16, then let all those who are in the Judea flee to the mountain. Verse number 21, for then there will be great tribulation. 
Verse number 23, then if anyone says to you, on and on and on. And then I notice this word tribulation. I see it in, uh, in verse number 9. It says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. And then I see in verse number 21, Jesus adds a definitive article in front of that to describe something greater than just tribulation. He says in verse 21, for then there will be now great tribulation. So we have tribulation and we have now great tribulation. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation. So is tribulation different than great tribulation? Are we talking about two different time periods here? And it's something we'll be talking about as we go through this. And so as we begin looking at this, I want you just to get a general overview of all that Christ is talking about. So let me just um, let me just read some of this to you, and then we're going to take a look at the first couple of verses. They asked Christ a question, and here was his answer. Take heed, verse 3, that no one deceives you. Well, in, in what way? What kind of deception are we talking about? For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars, and you will hear of rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places, and all of these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will arise and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And then Jesus backs off a little bit to define events that take place before the end will come. It's like, it's like in a movie scene that you see the, the general flow of the story, and then we're going to kind of move closer into some detail. Verse 15, because of all of that, therefore, when you, those that are still living at the time this happens, See, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babes in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Why? For then there will be great tribulation. This is at the midpoint of the tribulation period when the abomination of desolation takes place where the Antichrist sits on the bema seat of the reconstructed temple. By the way, uh, I read in the Israeli Times this week that the ruling body of Orthodox Judaism has already chosen the high priest for the new temple. They've already chosen a man to be able to make those sacrifices. I'm telling you, we're on the cusp of amazing things taking place. 
Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no shall never be. And unless those days were shortened to show you how bad the great tribulation would be, no flesh would be saved. But for the sake of the, but for the elect's sake, God's chosen sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, again, even the elect. Then there's this pause in Jesus. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if he says, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner room, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers, the dudamas of the heavenly heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. And then in the midst of this, the Lord gives us a cryptic clue. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When the branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know, Gnosko 109.7, that summer is near. You also, when you see all these things, you know, Gnosko, that it is near at the door. Surely I say to you, this generation, the generation that sees the events Jesus has just talked about, will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will by no means pass away. And then everybody starts speculating. They start putting dates down. They start trying to figure out exactly when Jesus is coming. He knows that, and so he says this. But know that the day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. But as in the days of Noah were, so also would the coming of the Son of Man be. For as it was in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered in the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also with the coming of the Son of Man be. And the rest of this chapter just talks about the fact that based on this, we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to expect to meet the Lord at any time. So if you would, go, go back with me to the beginning of this. Jesus, in verse 3, is sitting on the Mount of Olives. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the disciples, come to him and talk to him privately, saying, tell us when this is going to happen. Tell us what the signs are of your coming, and tell us what the signs are of the end of the age. And so Jesus begins to lay that out for them, and the first sign he talks about is deception profound, unbelievable, powerful deception. So much so that if it were possible, even those that were sealed in Christ would be deceived. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. 
Now, here's what the words mean. When it talks about taking heed, it means to discern and be perceptive. Now, here's the problem with most Christians today, and maybe many of you. I don't have time to be perceptive about the, the things of the, of, the, uh, of the earth right now. I don't have time to look for the signs of his returning. I don't have time to try to determine whether I'm being deceived or not because I'm working 60 hours a week on a job. I'm raising my kids. I've got all these to-do uh, things at home. My life is just absolutely swamped. I'm so busy in this world. I'm so busy just making it, just trying to take care of my family and do these God-honoring things God has placed on my plate to do that, that I, I don't even have time to be able to determine whether or not what I'm hearing or whether I'm seeing is from him or not from him. And we open up ourselves up to a great disservice when we don't stop and realize that we are pilgrims and sojourners on this world, on this earth. This is not our home. So he starts out by saying, take heed that no one deceives you. The word deceived here, the Greek word here, means the cause to wander from the truth, to be led astray from the truth, to mislead from the truth, to seduce you into believing something that's not true, or to cause you to fall into error. Whenever we're deceived, we're never deceived to do something good. We're never deceived to believe the truth. We're actually led astray. We're actually moved into another area. You know, when in the Garden of Eden, you have Eden, you have Eve who um, was trying to follow the Lord's will, and here comes Satan, and he tempts her, and he deceived her by convincing her truths about God weren't really true, that God, you know, was a selfish God, that God was holding back something good for her, and so therefore she was deceived. You and I, the church today in North America, is unbelievably deceived from the simplicity of Christ, from the, the absolute right and wrong, black and white teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that because we're, you know, we're led away by our own mind and our own will and our own volition, and then we're tempted and we fall stray. It says, take heed that no one deceives you. Same word is used several other times in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, it says this, Do not be deceived. What does that mean? Yeah, bad company corrupts good character. You can't date a lost person. You can't go into a business relationship with a lost person. You have to keep yourself separate and pure. If you, if you entangle yourself other than in a, you know, a, an evangelistic ministry kind of relationship where I have a relationship with you in order to share the gospel. If I have a relationship with you that we're feeding off each other and we're giving and taking and, and we have a, a heart for each other and you're lost, it, do not be deceived. You will not lead them to Christ by osmosis. Instead, they will lead you astray. Well, I, I don't believe that. I believe that I can date this lost person and through evangelistic dating. They'll see the chastity in me and they'll come to, 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 to become a Christian because they see my moral character. It never works. Never works. But we're deceived in the thinking that it does. That evil company corrupts good habits. If I hang around a, a bunch of lost friends, pretty soon I'll be like them in order to gain their acceptance. If I watch stuff on television that's evil in nature or, or align myself with an evil culture, I will pretty soon begin to lower my standards so I can be accepted by everybody else. 
It always happens that way. And the Lord says, it's in, he doesn't say it's inadvisable for you to do that. He says, don't be stupid. Don't be deceived. Evil company, bad company corrupts good morals, good habits, or good conversations every single time. We have the Galatians passage where it talks about deception. Do not be deceived to the point that you're mocking God. If you sow to the flesh, of that flesh you'll reap of the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, of the Spirit you'll reap of spiritual things. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And, and a lot of our lives are done sowing into this world. We're sowing into this world system. We're sowing into our jobs. We're sowing into our possessions. And we're not sowing into our children or our families or the kingdom of God. And whatever we sow, that's what we're going to reap. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. Well, no. I'll reap money, I'll reap security, I'll reap all the things that our world tells You're being deceived. But there's the Lord lying? And if you think he's lying, you're mocking him. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Holy Spirit reap everlasting life. It's a short life in which we live. And we spend a lot of our time trying to make it in this world that we may end up in heaven empty-handed. 2 Timothy chapter 3, same word is used. All of you who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Well, I, I believe that. If I desire, if I have a will implying active volition, if I'm working hard to living a godly life in Christ, then the darkness of this world will want to stamp out my light. If many of us are not experiencing persecution, shame on us. It's because maybe our light doesn't shine bright in our family because we just want to kind of keep the peace and stuff of that nature. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Why? Because look what he says about the other side. But evil men and imposters, imposters are people who seduce or enchant. They're, they're trying to allure you with something that is false, grow worse and worse. How? Deceiving and then themselves being deceived. We desire to live a godly life in Christ. We will suffer persecution from those people who are trying to deceive us because they themselves are deceived. Well, how bad is it going to be? How bad is it right now? Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and deceive many. If you'll notice, the deception here is people claiming to be Jesus himself or claiming to be of Christ. The deception comes from people who claim to be believers but aren't. We see that in Matthew 24, 5. A couple verses later, many false prophets will arise. False prophets who claim to speak for God and will deceive many. You see it in verse number 24. For false Christ and false prophets will arise, and not only will they speak verbally, but they'll show great signs and wonders, and we'll talk about this. Why? To deceive, if possible, you. Believers in Christ, 
the elect. It just shows you how intense this deception must be. So the question I have when I'm looking at this is, okay, so um, what are the signs and wonders? I mean, how, how, does that, uh, how does that even work? If you would, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's read a little bit about what happens in the end times when the great apostasy takes place. And we're going to begin in verse number 1. The church in Thessalonica, Paul was only there for a couple weeks, and he had to leave because of great persecution, and he was, he was worried about them. And obviously that they had received some sort of letter, or some prophetic utterance, or something to tell them that the word of the day of the Lord had already come, that Christ had already appeared, and they were shocked about, well, what about the people we know that have passed away? How come we're left behind? I don't understand. So he writes this to try to explain that to them. And here's what he says in verse number 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, this is the parousa and the harpazo. This is the second coming of Christ and the rapture. He says, we ask you not to be so soon shaken in mind or troubled either by a spirit or by a word or by a forged letter as if from us, as though the day of the Lord, the day of Christ had come. Let no one, here we go again, deceive you by any means, for that they will not come unless, number one, the great apostasy takes place first, the great falling away. That they will not come unless the falling away comes first, and then the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed the son of perdition. And then it describes who this man is, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the abomination of desolation. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he, your Bibles have that, capitalized, because it's talking about the Holy Spirit here, is taken out of the way. And then, then the man of lawlessness will be fully revealed. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. It says, the coming of the, the, coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that, may not be, that they may not be saved. I want to take a moment, and I want you to look at this verse. Power packed. When the deception comes, it will come by counterfeiting the things of God. It says, then the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. That's the, that's the ability and the energy of Satan. With all power, this is deutimos, this is explosive miracle working power. With signs, and signs are miracles that attest to something greater than the miracle itself. A small definition of this word would be an attesting miracle. That I am who I say I am by changing water into wine. So based on the fact that I have perform this miracle, therefore I am the Messiah. So with all power and signs 
and lying, false and fictitious wonders or mighty works. And with all unrighteous, here we go again, deception, not among us, but among those who perish. Why did they perish? And this is an election verse in here. Because they did not receive that we all have received from God the agape of the truth that they might be saved. When the deception comes, it comes in an overwhelming picture of this is what Christianity is like. Now, we don't have miracles and signs in our churches today, and so somebody comes in and says, I will perform signs and miracles today, and now this lame person can walk, and a blind person can be healed, or can see, or fire is called down from heaven, like on Mount Carmel, and all of us, because of the signs, the testing to something greater than the signs, say this must be God. It's that kind of deception. We see it in Revelation chapter 13. Um, Go there if you would, please. Well, this is fleshed out a little bit more. This talks about the Antichrist, the beast and from the sea and the beast from the land, and it talks about the false prophet. We'll look at verse number 11. It says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And if you'll study the book of Revelation, there's two groups of people here. There's people of the earth who are lost, and there's the people of heaven who are saved. So it says, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and all those who dwell in them to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs, he the beast performs great signs. These are attesting miracles. So that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Do you remember that miracle? It was a pinnacle time in the Old Testament. You had Elijah and you had all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. There's 450 of them and it's just Elijah. You remember the story on Mount Carmel? You call to your God, I'll call to my God. The God that responds by fire, that's who God is. All day long into the evening, they cut themselves and they dance around their altar and nothing happens. Elijah then comes and pours these huge 50-gallon tubs of water to actually saturate his offering in the middle of a drought, and he calls from heaven, fire comes down, all of Israel says, yes, God, Jehovah is God. And this is the exact sign that's going to take place during this period of great deception. So he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And because of that, he deceives, he leads them astray, he causes them to err those who dwell on the earth by those signs by those attesting miracles that he was granted to do by the Antichrist, by Satan himself in the sight of the beast, and telling all those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. If you would, go back to um, Matthew 24. Why is this even important? Well, all that's going to happen out there, Steve. It's not going to happen today. We don't have to worry about it today. And and that's so wrong. Because it's not all of a sudden like everybody's going to be these Bible-believing, absolutely full of faith believers, and the Antichrist comes and our brain shifts off, and then all of a sudden we're we're lured to that. It doesn't happen that way at all. There's a there's a shift, there's a 
There's a like a slow boil that leads us in that direction. I mean, a man doesn't wake up one morning and say, you know what? I love my wife and I've been married to her for 30 years, but I'm going to go to um, work today and I'm going to have an illicit affair with my secretary out of the blue. It doesn't happen that way. It happens by lingering a little longer at her desk and thinking about her when you come home and having lunch with her and, and very slowly lowering your guard and being, being allured and being deceived. It works exactly the same way with us. We're moving towards this time where the world in general is going to usher in the reign of the Antichrist. So Steve, in what ways are you deceived today? Well, the way we're not deceived is to know exactly what God's Word says, but most of us don't. Most of us know a smattering of God's Word. Most of us you know, make, make excuses for why we didn't get a chance to study. I should have studied, but, you know, I had to work late at work. I should have studied, but, you know, I was, I had to mow my lawn. I should have studied, but there's other things that demand my time that are all earth-related. And so, therefore, I, I really don't know. So I'm going to go on television and listen to what this guy says or read this book or, or this esoteric experience somebody has over there. So I really don't know. I mean, in what ways are, are we deceived? Are we deceived about the nature of God? Is he truly good? Is he truly loving? Is he truly a father to us? Are those just songs that we sing? Or do we somehow view God like our earthly God? Do we view God as like a, like a despot and someone who wants to just slap us down? I mean, how, how does that work out? I mean, if I started with Karen and she explained and described her relationship with the Father and how she views God, a lot of us would have different views of him based on the time we spend with him or based on experiences we've had with him, good or bad, or our own earthly father. How, uh, how does that work? Our scripture. Oh, I believe the scripture unless it convicts me. And if it convicts me about something that I, I disagree with, then that really shouldn't be in there. You know, we've got this whole woman's movement where, you know, the Me Too movement and all that kind of stuff where now all of a sudden men who hold on to a biblical view of authority of Scripture when it comes to women pastors and stuff of that nature are misogynists. Is that how you pronounce that? I mean, it's crazy what's going on out there. And Karen and I were, were uh, watching t some television last night and every single commercial we saw, and I know I shared this with you before, every single commercial about a car, there is a woman driving because men aren't capable of driving anymore. It's just the nature in which we live. And every single commercial we saw that had to do with families getting together, there was always two men stuck in the middle of that. Have you ever noticed that? You know, there's four shots in a commercial, four Four scenes, and one of those scenes involved two ho a homosexual couple, like that makes up 25 or 30 or 40 percent of our actual population today. And, and pretty much we see it over and over and over again until it doesn't bother us anymore because we're being deceived. How important is obedience? Well, it's important about things I don't mind obeying, but things that I, bothers me to obey, I don't want to obey that at all. I mean, how in the world, and again, I don't, this sounds really terrible. The Republican Party has infinite problems, but I could never vote for somebody who is for pro-abortion. Can you? How in the world can Christians vote for a party who wants to abort babies after they're born and pass laws that when an abortion fails and there's actually a child born who is totally viable, that it's against the law to, to 
help them survive. How is that even possible when it comes to our obedience to him? What constitutes true salvation? Is it just some words that I spoke with no change in my life? Is it a lordship salvation? Is it some verbal thing? Is saying a sinner's prayer enough? How about this view of the Old Testament? Is the Old Testament God different from the New Testament God? Is Jesus all loving and, and I like to hang around him, but the Old Testament God is really a bad guy? I mean, um, what is that? What, what about uh, the future? What about my present? What about what's going on? I mean, how in the world am I being deceived? I want you to think about the world that you live in today. And I want you to tell me what institution you trust. Seriously. Do you trust the government? The media? Are they always going to do what's right for you and tell you the truth? Do you trust the educational system? Or do they have their own agenda? Do you trust our economic system? That you're always going to get a fair shake and people are going to treat you right? Do you trust the church today? Does the church even speak with a single voice today? I mean, do you trust the family unit? Do you trust your kids or your spouse more than anybody else? Well, no, because even in the Christian church, two-thirds of Christians have already experienced divorce, and so I had that trust in my first spouse. Now I'm married to my second spouse, but I don't really trust them as much. I'm kind of hedging my bet because of the hurt that I've had. I mean, if you think about it, every single institution in our culture right now, we don't trust. We don't. <laughs> Man and woman get married, they have separate checking accounts. Why? Well, because she has his money and he has her money, and never the two shall be one. What? How is that even? How are we supposed to be one flesh here? You tell it to your daughter. My daughter says, I want to be a homemaker. I want to be a mother. I want to raise kids for a living. I want to, I want to be the biblical Proverbs 31 wife. Well, you can't. You have to have a college education. You have to have a career because you may devote yourself for 20 years to your husband and your kid, and he may divorce you, and then you're going to have to make a living for yourself. True? I mean, we preach that in churches today. How, what, what's happening here? How is that even possible? Deception. And if you'll notice, there's a, there's a specific type of deception the Lord is talking about. And the deception is for false Christ and false prophets about Christ are people who come in his name and say, this is what Jesus believes. For many will come in my name. Many will come claiming to be from me. Many will be in some of the largest pulpits in America. They may be people who claim to pray six or eight or 10 or 15 hours a day. They may be people that have memorized more scripture than you have. They may be people that have won more people to, to the Lord than you have. They're, they may be our celebrated Christian leaders. Who knows? Many people will come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I am him. Now, there's two ways to interpret them. This one way is to simply say, I am the Christ, like follow me, like cult leaders, or I belong to Christ, follow me as I follow Christ. Everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm saying, everything that I'm teaching you, everything that I'm modeling you comes from Christ because I'm coming in his name and I'm showing you exactly what Christ is like. And it says when that happens, many will be deceived. But there's more. If anyone says to you, look, there's the Christ. There's someone who models Christ, looks like Christ, acts like Christ. We need to be like them. 
are there, they just do not believe them. Why? For there are false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great counterfeit signs, much like um, Pharaoh's magicians, and will deceive, if possible, even those who are truly Christ. How is that possible? How is it possible that a true believer of Christ can be deceived by a false Christ? And it's because we don't know the real thing. My, uh, um, my daughter worked at Bank of America many years ago, and I've heard that one of the ways that they train tellers to represent counterfeit money is to not to show them counterfeit money, but to show them real money. Here's real money. And real money has a certain feel to it. And real money has a certain texture to it. And you're just feeling the real thing and the real thing. And all of a sudden, if you slip a counterfeit bill in there, it just feels different. It doesn't feel the same. They don't spend all their time studying cults and, you know, all these claims of false Christ. Instead, they want to know what the truth is. They want to know what the real Christ is. They want to have a vibrant relationship with him so that anything that comes into their life that is different from the Jesus they already know, they immediately pick it up and go, no, that's not right. That feels weird. That doesn't, that doesn't sound like Jesus. False Christ and false prophets will come and deceive many. I had some questions here. You know, will we know when that happens? And is that all of a sudden going to be like some television evangelist who comes up and goes off the rails even worse than, some, than many of them are? Are they going to be easy to recognize? How will we know? And the reality is that you and I are surrounded by a lot of false prophets and false Christ right now. I want you to turn to, to 1 John chapter 2. I just want to go through these really quickly and we'll call this, we'll close this up. 1 John chapter 2. And I want to show you the difference between the Antichrist and an Antichrist or the spirit of Antichrist. 1 John chapter 2. Well, beginning to verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Why? Well, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And as the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does obedience, the will of God, abides forever. Little children, verse 18, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the definitive article, capital A, Antichrist is coming. The Antichrist, the lawless one, is coming. Even now, many, many small a, many Antichrist have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. In the church, there were people who weren't the Antichrist, but there were people who had the spirit of Antichrist. Their job was to deceive the flock. Their job was to draw people away from the truth. Their job was to mislead people, seduce people, get people to err. Their job was to be empowered by the spirit of Antichrist, although they weren't the definitive article, capital A, Antichrist. Look what he says, verse 19. They went out from us, these people, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them, the small antichrist, were of us. 
but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I had not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and there is no lie in you. But who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is, small a, Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. We've got definitive article Antichrist, and then we have the spirit of Antichrist. Turn to chapter 4. Verse number 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe things that you hear. Test those. But test the spirits, whether they are of God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. But you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of the definitive article, capital A, Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. And you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Second John chapter 1, and I'll... Last one here. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming into the flesh. And who are these people? This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Not the antichrist, but an antichrist. So what does that mean? What are we supposed to do? We'll be talking more about this verse next week. I have, um, I have implored every one of us in here, here to increase your spiritual fervency and vitality for the Lord. To say no to whatever you need to say no to in this world to be able to grow in the Spirit. We've talked about spiritual breathing. We've talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit. We've talked about making resolutions that are lifelong commitments. We've, we talked about putting Christ first in all things. We've talked uh, about a multitude of things. And one of the reasons is the fact that deception is here and deception is coming and deception is just, just runs rampant on the Internet. And you and I have a responsibility to be men and women of valor when it comes to Christ. But I'm tired. So am I. I mean, I'm wore out all the time. And some of you have mothers with four or five or six kids. I got that. We're all exhausted. And it's harder to make a living. And as a man, that's our responsibility. I got that. But you know, making a living doesn't necessarily mean that we always have to make more and more and more money. Making a living means that we make enough to meet our needs. Christ says that he will take that for us. And if we're spending 60 or 70 or 80 or 100 hours a week to better ourselves in this world and not bettering ourselves spiritually and passing it on to our wives and children, we are short-sighted and failing and are being deceived. None of it we can take with us. None of it. As the day comes... And persecution takes place. And by the way, um, you know, if Donald Trump gets elected next year or in 2020, we'll, you know, we'll have a, a reprieve for a while. But if he doesn't, and eventually we will have a Democratic president, and eventually we will have a Democratic Congress, and 
and Senate and stuff of that nature. When that happens, do you realize the changes are going to take place in our nation almost immediately? Do you realize the persecution is going to take place on Bible-believing Christians like you and I? Your right to homeschool, your right to bear arms, you know, your right to, to be able to, to save money, your right to have freedom of speech about a political protected class out there. Have you got any clue of what's going to happen in our country? The borders will be wide open. The, the, the coffers of the United States will be printing money as fast as they can. We're going to become a third world nation, which is exactly what has to happen before Christ comes. Because the protector of Israel is not the United States. It is now. The protector of Israel is God Almighty. They have to stand alone. Read the scriptures. And it's all being set up like chess pieces on a board. And, and we're just clueless. Just rocking on like yesterday will be like today and today will be like tomorrow. But tomorrow's different than today because every day that passes by, more of your religious freedoms are being taken away. And because they, they go after a fringe group and we all say, well, those people aren't real Christians, all they have to do is move the goalpost and they desynthesized us to what's happening in our nation right now. Now is the time that we have to be serious about the Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 24 says this, and we will look at more of this next week. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. If you shrink back, if you become slack, if you become discouraged and disheartened or lazy, things are really bad out there and I'm just so depressed. I don't want to hear sermons about how terrible things are going to be. I want to hear sermons about my best life now. The only people on the planet whose this life is their best life now are people going to hell. Do you realize that? This is your worst life now. We have heaven to look forward to. In the day of distress and anguish and apathy, then your strength, your might, your power in Christ is small or tight or narrow or very limited. So what are we to do? i got two passages here I'd like you to look up. One of the second Corinthian passages talk about the fact that, that um, the weapons that we fight with are divinely powerful. You know, we're not talking about buying AR-15s and all that kind of stuff. We're talking about spiritual things. We're talking about the fact that when you come to church next week, if you're not a 10 if you're not at least as spiritual as you, as you have been at some other time in your life. You know, uh, Steve, uh, where are you at spiritually right now? Oh, I don't know, but maybe a seven. Okay, so when were you a ten? When were you most close to the Lord? I don't know, probably 2017. So for the last two years, you've been less than you at one time were. That's lukewarm, that's backslide. Well, you're pretty much, but I'm kind of comfortable as an eight. If you come to church next week and you're not greater spiritually, closer to him, understand his word more than you have ever been in your life, shame on us. I mean, what are we doing? Why? And we think that's okay. Lord, I, I love you 70% now than I have loved you in the past. Well, that's not true. I love him even more. Okay. Then I talk to you 70% as much, I, I'm obedient to you. Where does the seven come from? You know what I mean? It, that, that, it can't be that way. We've got to be a, got to be a 10. And the next week, you know, where are you at? Well, 
you know, last week I was a 10. I guess I'm a 10 now, but I'm so much closer to the Lord now than I was last week. So based on last week, I'm probably a 12, which is your new 10. And we just rock on. Got to be that way. Have to be that way. Because we're running out of time. Do not be deceived into thinking tomorrow will be like today and life will just rock on. And, you know, they've been talking about Jesus coming for 2,000 years and he hasn't come, but maybe he won't. Look at the prophetic signs. Look at the number of earthquakes. Look at the fact that of the number of wars that we have going on right now and the rumors of war that can happen at any moment with nuclear powers. Look at, well, we are going to be looking at that in the weeks to come. But I want to encourage you. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a time to get serious about the things of the Lord because none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. Amen? Let me pray.